0: Yeah, thanks, Marv. Um, you know, I don't know about you, but like th- that that chorus or whatever it is, I'm not a music guy, but um, if you're lost and stumble in, come something, come wandering, come stumbling. I'm not a word guy either, apparently. Um, come stumbling in like a prodigal child. Got it right. Like, uh, um and I just yell that out. I feel sorry for the worship team because I was sitting right here, you know, because um, that's the heart of the gospel. You know, that's the heart of why we're here, is that the, is that we are all lost and stumbling, and lost and wandering, and, uh, and we need to, and we just stumble into the arms of Jesus, and He's the one that saves us. So, um, I just, I just love that. Well. Thank you for joining us this morning. If you don't know me, my name is Steve. I'm one of the pastors here. And, you know, this morning we are going to be kind of starting our, uh, a new study in the book of John. I'm, I feel really, really loud, uh, Grady. If, am I really loud? If Good thing I'm not doing the singing. If you're lost in... Like, um, hey, that's good. Was that, was that good? I should be on worship. So <laughs> those are the only two notes I can hit. So uh, if I even hit them. Uh, can, are, are we getting that? Is it getting better? All right, I just because when I get excited, I don't want the Max man thing to happen here, and everybody's like heritable back. And, um, you know, the uh, I almost called him the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul. Paul spoke during Advent. Um, on I'm having a rough morning, I'm having a rough morning this morning. At the beginning of John, and he he covered that section in the beginning of John, where the gospel of john and and i 'll talk about it in just a minute, but we 're going to be i 'm going to be continuing where Paul left off in his advent series and we 're going to be spending the next who knows how long studying in the Gospel of John. My plan is to to Preach through the Gospel of John. Maybe we'll do it, Take a break in the summer, like we did last year. But um, we, it, with the summer break, it took us about a year to get through First Samuel. I think it would probably take us about the same, you know, to get through the Gospel of John. But we'll be in the Gospel of John in the near, you know, into the foreseeable future, Lord willing, you know. But the the text that Paul preached on during uh, during Advent, at the, the first, I think it's eighteen verses of the Gospel of John. It, it, there's this. You could, you could say it's poetic. There's this poetic, like, description of the person of Jesus. And if you have your Bibles, open to John chapter 1, just... And I'm just going to go through it really, really quickly, and just highlight this Jesus that John, like um, that John, spoke about from the beginning. It says in verse one, "In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God." He says Jesus is the Word of God. He is the embodiment of God's self-expression. He is the embodiment of God's thought. He is the embodiment of everything that God does. He goes on in verse um, in verse two. He was in the beginning with God, that Jesus is the pre-existent one, the one that like existed before time. He is eternal. Verse 3, all things came into being by him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. He is the creator of all things. Verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Like, John's telling us that Jesus is the one in whom we will find life and in whom, like, our life as humans will be restored. He's our light. He's the one that guides us to that life. If you skip down to verse 11, he came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. He was rejected by those that should have received him, verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. That, that Jesus came, and when he came, like there were, he was met with either rejection or belief. But the ones that believed became adopted as God's children and experienced all the joy of what it means to be a child of God. Verse 14 and the word became flesh. This, this one that's the embodiment of God's like self-disclosure became flesh. Speaking about the mystery of the incarnation. And dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Like Jesus manifested the glory of God um, and in a way that is just saturated with grace and truth. And then down in verse 18, I mean, there's more. Down in verse 18, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. That Jesus, as the Son of God, as the only begotten from the Father, he's the one that like helps us understand who God is. No one can see God, any, has seen God any time, but Jesus explains him. He narrates who God is to us. Like John starts this his gospel here in in John one with like this poetic and majestic and far reaching and and like I don't know artistic portrayal of the of Jesus Christ. He has no interest in saying that Jesus was like a good teacher, or Jesus was a good moral example, or Jesus was a swell guy, or Jesus was whatever that people like to make him out today. He, he came right out of the gates declaring that Jesus is God himself come in the flesh so that we could understand who God is and in him have life and understand light to like make it through this world. That's John's point. And that's his, he, he, he opens his book with that declaration. And then interestingly enough, like throughout the gospel of John, he's going to try to prove all of that. He's going to try to prove it. And what he does starting in the text we're going to look at this morning in verse 19 is all of a sudden that like, you have this big cosmic portrayal of who Jesus is. And all of a sudden it just focuses our attention into the dusty first century world of ancient like Israel where a guy by the name of John the Baptist happened to be baptizing people um, along the Jordan River. And we're going to pick up our story this morning right there in verse 19. You know, our text this morning, 19 through 34, is going to break out into two kind of big sections. The first section is, is that John's evasive answers. There are our, uh, our text is going to show us that a lot of people went and were questioning John about who he was, and, and John, like a well-coached uh, guy put on the stand like by the defense attorney or whatever, is just really good at not answering their question. Like he, he, he gives them a bunch of answers, but not the answers that they want to know, and we'll talk about that as we go through it. And then, and then the second one is John's exalting testimony, when then John does speak. He, like, testifies to who Jesus is in a really clear way. So please stand with me. I'm going to read verses 19 through 28. This, more, I mean, yeah, 19 through 28, um, that first section of the text. Then I'll pray and we'll get into it um, in just a minute. This is God's word for his church about his son, Jesus Christ. And this is the witness of John when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, and he confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Then they said to him, who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent me. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. And they asked him and said to him, why then are you baptizing, baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered them saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for your word. I thank you for Um, It revealing to us your son, and I just ask that you would allow me to speak um, your word in such a way this morning that we would get a a fresh glimpse of the greatness of Jesus and that we would believe and follow him because of it. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. You know, as we get into verse 19, um, you know, it begins with, And this is the witness of John. Let me just get, get a, couple, a couple things just for clarity right at the beginning. First of all, there's two Johns that we're talking about in this story, and I'll try to be clear, but like, like as my opening statements were about the song, like as likely I won't be. Um, there's John the Baptist, who's our main character in the story today. Um, and if you don't know who John the Baptist was, he was a guy that came on the scene right before Jesus, was, Jesus came on the scene. He was actually Jesus' cousin, um, and he was, he was older than Jesus. That'll factor in by, I think, about six months. Um, uh, and, but he, and he was Jesus' cousin. But he comes on the scene along the Jordan River in Israel, and he's preaching this, this um, repentance and, and baptizing people. That's why he's called John the Baptist, or Marv referred to him as John the Baptizer, which is probably more accurate. Um, then there's another John, the, the guy who wrote this book, who most likely was um, Jesus' disciple, John, as in the triad Peter, James, and John. Like this is, And so sometimes I'll say John, referring to the writer of this book, and sometimes I'll be talking about John the Baptist, and hopefully I can make that clear. But if you're confused, that's probably the, the uh, origin of that. But if... But what we, like when John the Apostle starts talking about the ministry of John the Baptist, he doesn't like really give us any detail about, about what John was doing, about what he looked like. Some of the other Gospels give it that. That was not his concern. His entire concern is focused on this. In this section, is focused on this conversation he had with a group of people. And look what it says. And th- it begins with this statement. And this is the witness, or a lot of your Bibles probably read, testimony of John. Now let me just make a, state, a statement about the word witness or testimony. Um, in our Bibles, you often have this word translated. Um, it, it has different forms. One form, like, has to do with the testimony itself. Sometimes it ha- that word points to like the person making the testimony, the witness themselves, and sometimes the witness is talking about what they say or testimony. I just want to be clear about the word testimony or witness because sometimes we like as Christians we. I don't know why, but we like take these words and we give them like new meaning, like the word testimony. You know, if I were to say, I'm going to give my testimony today, a lot of you would say like, oh, Steve's going to tell his life story and he's going to like, like frame it in a way that, that uh, somehow spiritualizes it, right? And hopefully points attention on Jesus. Where in another context, I might just tell my life story and it wouldn't be my testimony. You guys, you guys with me? That's not what the word means. Like, it's not like this spiritual word that says you're going to tell a story and just frame it in a way that makes it sound spiritual. The word witness or testimony is a legal word. And it literally means, like, a witness. Like, if you're going to be put on trial, you bring witnesses to bear. And, and the job of the witness or the person giving testimony isn't to, like, frame something in a way that makes it sound spiritual, it's to tell people what they really saw, what they really experienced, and what is really true, at least from their perspective. So, you know, if you're one of those people that's like, man, I just don't know. Like, I don't want to ever witness to somebody because I don't know what to say. Well, the, the implication is right there is that you're saying something that you haven't, like, seen or experienced or, or that you don't know to be true. The term witness means tell people what you've seen heard and experienced and if you don't have anything to say it might tell you something about like whether or not you have much of a relationship with Jesus whatsoever And maybe if that's the case I would tell you to maybe focus on like understanding more about Jesus and keep your mouth shut for a while so because uh, what's the word I'm looking for um, yeah. when I look at you Bill I think of that but uh, <laughs> <laughs> wow, surely gave an amen his life, so Bill said, "Shut up, so if it 's okay to say that in in uh, anyway no like like the whole point isn 't to give some trumped up testimony it 's to actually say what you 've experienced. All that you have to tell people is what Jesus has done for you that's what, that 's what and that 's what 's going on with John. This is the witness of John. this is his testimony in fact, if you look at how he ends. This whole section in verse 34, this is John the Baptist speaking. I have seen and I have borne witness. Like this is my sworn testimony of what I've experienced. And then we're introduced to this group of people. This is the witness of John when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? You know, the priests and Levites that were sent to John, you know, like just to kind of paraphrase it, they were basically like spiritual police sent to John by the, by the religious establishment in Jerusalem to discover like who John the Baptist claimed to be. That's what they say. Who are you? And what we find out in the next verse, the way the, the word confessed is used, is that they had some hostility in their like communication. Like, who do you think you are, John? The, the religious police, representing the religious establishment, came to inquire of John, and he bore, like, sworn testimony to them. And it's interesting what, he, what, it, what, the, what the Bible tells us here in verse 20. And he confessed, and he did not deny, and he confessed... You know, that's supposed to get our attention, that repeated use of the word confessed and the words I did and did not deny. It, when I read it out loud, that probably struck you as a weird, like, rendering it's supposed to, supposed to get your attention. And then, he's, then it's interesting because he says, and he did not deny. And then the very next thing is a denial. I am not the Christ. What, what? John, the writer of the gospel, is telling us that by using the word confessed, is that word confessed, as he uses it throughout the rest of the book, speaks to about, like, speaking about your allegiance to someone in the face of hostility. That's how we know that this question someone had a tone of hostility. That John is confessing his allegiance to someone. He's not denying his allegiance to someone, but he's confessing his allegiance to someone by saying the words, I am not the Christ. You could probably even put some intonation in it. I am not the Christ. It's a statement laden with, with uh, innuendo. That could, that's, the word I could, that's the word that popped in my head. It sounded like the wrong word, but I'll go with it. <laughs> suggestion. That was the word I was looking for, suggestion. It's, the, it's, it's a statement laden with suggestion that, you know what, guys? It doesn't really matter who I am. I'm not the Christ. I am not the Christ. But there's this hint, like, oh, maybe there is someone else that is. He did, he confessed it in the face of that hostility. He did not deny it, and he confessed his allegiance to this one that he only just, like, hints at. It's a little bit of, he doesn't ever, he doesn't tell them who he is. He tells them who he's not. Sometimes that's the best, maybe the best thing to do, even in, as we kind of, like, to think about, our relationship with Jesus it's helpful to know who we aren't so that we can understand who he is john declares he's not so he doesn't answer their question directly i am not the christ then verse 21 then they asked him what then are you elijah well that might sound like a weird question for like because elijah was a prophet that lived in the old testament a long time before this and um, interestingly enough elijah was one of two people that we know in the bible like never died like he was taken up to heaven without dying and the last words of the Old Testament, um, chronologically, the last words and in, in our Bibles, actually in the Old Testament, Malachi four, five and six, had this promise in them. It says this in Malachi four, five and six, "Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Those are the last words of Scripture spoken before, like, this moment. And so the, it kind of gives us an idea, like, the, the, the Jews in the first century had this sense of, like, this messianic sort of expectation of God wanting to work again. And in Malachi 4, 5, and 6, God had promised that before he comes in the great and terrible day of the Lord, which is the day of his judgment, he is going to send Elijah the prophet. So, so they had the question, well, maybe you're Elijah, John gives them a really thorough answer, verse 21, and he said, I am not. Just kind of leaves it there. Again, not giving them a whole lot of information. Then he says, are you the prophet? It's another interesting um, statement. Their, Their question about the prophet goes clear back to Deuteronomy, like 1,400 years before this. God promised in Deuteronomy 18 He said this, he says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses is speaking, from among you, from your countrymen, and you shall listen to him. This is in accordance to all that you asked of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire anymore, or I will die. It's an interesting story. What happened in Exodus 19 is that God appeared on Mount Sinai and his glory appeared there. And it talks about his glory appearing there in uh, clouds and lightning and in thunder and in his voice. And when the people of Israel like, like drew near to the mountain and heard like, saw all of his like, glory and all of its power, they were like, no, we're tapping out. Moses, you go talk to him. And they said, we don't ever, we don't ever want to hear that again lest we die. And God said, actually, if you can look back at, I think it's in Exodus 20, you can look back at the story, but God says they've spoken well. But I'm going to raise up a prophet to come who will speak my word, and you better listen to him. So the Jews were like, oh, John, are you that guy? You know, interestingly enough, like, Look what it says back in chapter 1, verses, verses um, 17 and 18. Uh, no, not uh, verse 14. I'm sorry, verse 14. And the word, talking about Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Like, this prophet that was to come, not only, like, Jesus Christ, not only, like, was able to, like, like, face the glory of God, he actually manifested the glory of God. And then it says this in verse, in verse uh, 16, For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses, back there on Mount Sinai, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No man has seen God in any time, but the only begotten who is in the bosom of the Father he has explained him this promise of the coming prophet and the people not wanting to see the glory of God, and John tying it in here with Jesus coming in the flesh and manifesting god 's glory that 's not law but grace and truth what he 's saying is that with the arrival of Jesus, like We can see the glory of God now in a way where we can experience His grace and His truth in a way that was never possible before. And John's like, you know, I'm not that guy either. I'm not the prophet. I'm not Elijah. Then in verse, um, yeah, verse twenty, he just said no. And so then they get a little bit frustrated. Then they said to him, "Who are you?" So that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? They're like, we don't want to go back to our bosses and tell them, like, we couldn't get an answer out of you. Can you just tell us in your own words who you are? Because all that we've gotten is denials so far. And then he says this. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet had said. You know, we talked about this a little bit last week when I was in Isaiah, but, but beginning in Isaiah chapter 40, like this message of judgment that had come upon the nation of Israel, like begins to change. And, and beginning in chapter 40, like God begins to speak words of comfort and words of restoration. And in fact, if you look, if, uh, I have it on the screen. If you, if you look at Isaiah 40, this is how God opens this section. Comfort, O oh comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. He's like, let this kind word go out. Let this comforting word go out. God's gonna be bring restoration. He's gonna bring like healing. He's gonna bring forgiveness. Their iniquity has been removed. Verse 3, a voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God, let every valley be lifted up, and let every mountain and hill be made low, and let the rough ground become a plain, and the rugged terrain a broad valley, then the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So what John says is, if you want to know who I am, I am nothing more than a, just a voice in the wilderness, but I am the voice in the wilderness that Isaiah talked about. I am the voice in the wilderness that, that calls uh, to, to make a, a clear highway to make ready for the Lord. What, John, what Isaiah is doing is he's using a, a civil engineering illustration. For all of you, like, Oregon State grads, like any like, civil engineers in the group here. yeah. John 1 is poetry. That's probably more like U of O's thing. That's why I had Paul <laughs> preach it. So um, John 2 is civil engineering, or John 1, the last half is John 1. So so uh, you guys, if you don't know Paul, get to know him. You'll understand why I assigned John, the first part, the poetry part, to him. So uh, he's a civil engineer grad from Oregon State, who, right? So Anyway back on task steve <laughs> he's using this illustration of simple engineering and he's saying you know what there's 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 all of these obstacles and the context is the people of israel coming back from captivity coming being restored from oppression being restored from exile And there's all of these obstacles. And he says, let every valley be lifted up. Like all those low places be raised. All of the, every mountain and hill be made low. Like bring in the earth movers and excavate that off. And let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain, a broad valley. Make a nice, wide, smooth, level highway because the glory of the Lord is arriving. You know what the the illustration is talking about, what John is saying about himself is like, I am the one who is Declaring this baptism of repentance. We find this out from the synoptic gospels, the other gospels. And that those things that are low need to be lifted up. Those things that are high need to be brought down. Those things that are rough and rugged need to be smoothed out because the Lord is coming. You need to turn from those things so that you can be ready to, to recognize the Lord when he comes. And now that the Lord is here, the Lord is the one that like raises up those low things in our hearts and brings down the high ones and smooths out the rugged ones. And it's through this repentance is what, is what John had been proclaiming. I'm that voice, he says. Like, let everything be lifted up, let everything be brought down because the glory of the Lord is about to arrive on the scene and you had better be ready. Then in verse 24, it's really interesting. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. Interestingly enough, like John kept the, he, in, back in verse 19, he just said they were Jews. He kept their identity hidden until verse 24. And now he springs on us the real culprits behind this delegation that was sent. He says, they're this group of people named the Pharisees. And if you don't know who Pharisees are, Pharisees were like a first century religious sect that, that, we were super OCD about them keeping the law. Like, they thought that if we can keep the law perfectly, then, then, like, God will accept us as his people. We'll be able to usher in his kingdom and all of those things. We just got to do it, like, absolutely perfectly. They were so obsessed about it that they created, like, rule after rule after rule after rule that went beyond what God said to make sure that they, that they never even came close to breaking the rules, Right? So the very last people in the world that in their minds, because you, you couldn't find anybody who was more interested in obeying God's word than the Pharisees. But John drops it there right after John says, I'm the one who's proclaiming this message of making your hearts ready for the Lord's arrival. Like repenting of those things that have brought you low or that lift you up or that make your life rough. They're like, they they apparently showed zero interest in that message because verse 24, they had been sent from the Pharisees, and then the very next thing they shift the subject. Let me just say, like, so easy to come to church, especially if you've grown up in the church or if you've been a Christian your whole life, and just to assume the Bible's talking about somebody else. And here are these delegation from the Pharisees must have assumed that oh that's not i can understand why all of this riffraff would need that message but we're not particularly interested in it let's talk about something else altogether but john 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 was super clear that everybody in israel needs to like be prepared for the lord's arrival so that they can recognize him when he comes and it's not through, like, self-righteousness like the Pharisees. It's through repenting of those things that that have kept us from the Lord. Don't think when when you hear anybody from, that's up here teaching from the Scriptures, when when you read the Scriptures, if all that you can think about is like, wow, that would be a good message for, like, Steve to hear or somebody. <laughs> and that's a dangerous place to be. That's, like, where the Pharisees were at. Verse 25. And they asked him, here's their change of subject. Why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? You have to understand what baptism is. Um, baptism was p- practiced in the first century Israel um, before the church kind of adopted it as, as their practice. And, and it, was, it was a practice where when somebody converted to Judaism... Men and women, like men had to get circumcised, but both men and women then in most sects of Judaism would also like go through a baptism. And baptism symbolized that they're leaving their old way of life behind and they're like following in this new way of life of Judaism. That's what baptism symbolized. And and, and Christian baptism is the same thing. When you're baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, what you're saying is, like, I am leaving my old way of life behind, no matter what it was, whether it was self-righteous religion, whether it was, like, just, like, like flagrant sin. And I'm putting my trust and my faith and my life in the hands of Jesus. And I'm going to follow him for right now. Where you're leaving one thing behind and embracing another. But if you think, if you roll back, like, the clocks in your mind, before Jesus, like, came onto the scene, John was taking Jews and baptizing Jews. So the question is, what are the Jews leaving behind and what are they going to? That's the heart of the question. Like, why are you baptizing them? Because they understood that when the Messiah came and when the prophet came and when Elijah came, that was going to usher in a new age. And so it would make sense to baptize, to symbolize the arrival of a new age. But here, like John is just taking, if he's none of those people, he's taking Jews, he's baptizing them, and they're still Jews. Why are you baptizing? Well, they, they understood to some degree the heart of the question. I mean, the heart of the question reveals that they understood something that John was testifying to a new age to come. He was testifying that with the arrival of Jesus, a new age has happened, and the old is passing away, and something new is coming. Look at his answer. And again, he's pretty evasive. John answered him, saying, I baptize in water. But among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He doesn't answer the question, why? In fact, he says, I'm only baptizing in water. I get people wet. You're asking the wrong question, is basically what he's saying. I get people wet, but there's somebody among you that you don't even know. And he is so great that I am not even worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. You know, in the ancient world, like the the Jews actually taught that if you were a a disciple of somebody, if you were a student of someone, that if the teacher asked you to do something, you had to do everything that a slave would be required to do except for untying their sandals. That was like too low for anybody but a slave. And John says, and untying the sandals of that guy is too high. It is too high for me. I'm not even worthy to do that. What he's telling this delegation is is like, you, you guys are asking the wrong question. My water means very little. The one who's among you, who I'm not even worthy to untie his shoe, that's who you should be concerned about. But then look at verse 28. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. End of scene. Those guys didn't really get really clear answers. They were sent home decently empty-handed they didn't uh they didn't ever ask any follow- up questions about the things that mattered, like, "Oh, who is this one that's among us? Oh, has the Christ come has like what do I need to maybe repent of?" They just went back end of scene. You know, a couple points of application, you know. First of all uh, when when we hear messages like this like and let's not do what that delegation from the Pharisees did let's let's like look at our hearts and ask ourselves what are those places in my heart where i need to repent like john was saying where the low things in my heart need to be brought like to the lord where the place where i exalt myself need to be brought low where those rough places need to be like taken care of and smoothed out He's not just preaching to others. He's making, like, way. And I want to be clear, like, he's not saying, like, we, like, earn ourselves to the Lord. He's talking about repentance. Take those things to him because the Lord is the one who lifts up and brings low and makes smooth. You know, the second thing we see here is this contrast between this delegation and this John. In fact, it's, it's similar language. Um... I think back in in verse six, chapter one, verse six, it says there there came a man sent from God whose name was John. Back in in uh, verse nineteen, and this is the witness of John when Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem. You had these two different messengers coming. You have John the Baptist, and you have this delegation of the Jews, and the delegation of the Jews like really really like left, like left that scene with all their questions unanswered and with like very little understanding of who Jesus was and, and in their pride and didn't recognize that maybe John was talking to them. And then you have John who Jesus actually said in one of the other gospels that there's no man greater than John that's ever lived. And John says, I am not even worthy to untie his shoe. But there is this deep humility you see in John and this kind of like, blinding arrogance that you see in the Pharisees. Like, you know, as we go through this gospel, maybe we be men and women who, like, embrace the humility that we should have because we truly know who Jesus is. You know, and oftentimes we think about humility as this thing that, that um, we should be humbled because we're just dirtbag sinners, right? Like, that's true, at least for all of you. Um. <laughs> me too that was sarcasm don't stone me to death but you know who the most humble person in the world was Jesus himself and guess what he wasn't he wasn't a sinner at all like uh, Andrew Murray speaks about like humility and and its relationship with sin. And this one says, I think I have it on the screen. It says, it needs to be made clear that it is not sin that humbles, but grace. It is the soul occupied with God in his wonderful glory as creator and, and redeemer that will truly take the lowest place before him. You know, he wrote that in 18 something, 1895. And he was saying, he was saying, you know, it's when we... It's when we see Jesus for who he is. It's when we see God for who he is as our creator and as our redeemer. Two things that both came out in John chapter 1. It's then when we understand our low place. It's not sin that humbles. It's the grace that we receive that should humble us. It's understanding who Jesus is that should humble us. And then from that place of humility, we should be humble before each other. John the Baptist recognized that. He doesn't talk at all about his sin. He just talks about the greatness of Jesus Christ. Like, I am not even worthy to untie that guy's sandals. You know, so as as we go into 2020, what year is this? 2023? As we go into 2023, like, let us have the same humility before God and before each other. Because when that falls into place, so many other things will fall into place with it. And when that's askew, we'll be blind to all sorts of wreckage. If we could just have the humility that we should have knowing that Jesus Christ, the, the creator of all things, like died in our place. It's his grace to us that should humble us more than just our own sin. This delegation from the, from the Pharisees completely missed that whole point, and they went home. And then in verse 29, we come up with our second point as John's exalting testimony. I'll move through this quicker. Look what it says in verse 29. It says, the next day he, John, saw Jesus coming to him, and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What happens here is really interesting is because because if you as we read through this and, and uh, we 'll read through it as i 'm teaching through it, but all the way through twenty nine through thirty four this is a new day, so one day is closed now we 're focused on a day, and if you look at verse thirty five again it says again the next day so john 's focusing in on one particular day surrounded by two other days, and in this one particular day like he he doesn 't talk about anybody except for John the Baptist, and Jesus himself. And in fact, he barely mentions Jesus. This entire thing, starting in verse 29 all the way through the end, is just John's testimony. It's just what John says. Like our, it's like the, the stage was there and all of a sudden the spotlight just focuses, the lights go off, the spotlight focuses in on just John as he's looking at Jesus coming to him. And there's no audience anywhere like spoken about in this day. It's like he's just there by himself. I think the effect of it, as you look at it in the text, is he's just there by himself with anybody who's reading the text. The spotlight focuses in on what John actually does have to say. And the other characters are all of us who are sitting off stage looking at what's being said. Because he doesn't mention anyone else. Listen to what he says. The next day... He saw Jesus coming to him and he says, Behold, look. Look, everyone. Everyone that's reading this. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now that is an earth-shaking statement if you are a first century Jew. The first thing that he says about Jesus is that he's he's the sacrificial lamb that takes away sin. What, it, what John's saying is like, there is something new happening here because in the, in the Old Testament paradigm, it was always animal sacrifices that they would shed for atonement. And what John's saying is here is like, no, 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 this, see this guy coming? This one that I'm going to show you in the rest of my book? He's the one that takes away the sin of the world. It's probably a combination of expressions like this idea of lamb of God. It's probably this combination of expressions from like the Passover lamb that was shed so that God's judgment upon Egypt would, would uh, pass over them and they'd be saved. And there's this picture of this lamb in Isaiah 53 that, was, that, that offered himself up as a sin offering for us. It's probably a, in John's mind some debate around exactly what his imagery is meant to evoke, but I think that's what it's meant to evoke, that... Jesus is the one who takes away the sin of the world. Like the fulfillment of all of the things in the Old Testament, of all of those sacrifices and all of that ritual is found in this guy that's walking up to me right now. Look at him. Behold, I am a God. He goes on. Verse thirty, this is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. It's an interesting thing for Jesus' older cousin to say. This guy, John is saying, existed before me. He has a higher rank than I. Why? Because Verse one, chapter one. In the beginning was the Word, Jesus, and the Word was with the God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being by Him, and not one thing came into being that isn't in a being. And I'm paraphrasing now. Jesus is eternal God, Creator of all things, come in the flesh. And John, th- that's why Jesus isn't. Wor- I mean, John's not worthy to untie even his sandal. And he's the Lamb of God that comes to take away the sin of the whole world. No matter who you are, Jew, not Jew, Arab, Israeli, Ukrainian, Russian, duck, beaver. <laughs> the gospel's big enough for all of it. Jesus' work is big enough for all of it. He goes on in verse 31. And I did not recognize him. Like John himself didn't even really know who, like who Jesus was until this moment. But in order that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. And John bore witness, saying, I have beheld the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. And I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. But well, John's like, man, I didn't really get it myself, but when, uh, when he came to me for water baptism and I baptized him and the Spirit of God came down upon him and remained upon him, I knew he was the one because God had told me the one to whom the, the Spirit comes on and remains upon is the one who then gives the Spirit, who baptizes in the Spirit. Verse 34, and I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God of god like john's john's giving his sworn testimony like this is like the same dna as god himself he's the one that he is the prophet that's to come he's the one that fulfills the law he's the one that that takes away the sin of the world And I've seen, and I've borne witness. So help me God is what John's saying, like he's swearing testimony here. You know, it's interesting because there's this language there. one of the things that John says in verse 32, at the end of verse 32, it says that the Spirit came and remained upon him, and what, and and that was a clue for John that that. Uh, that Jesus was the one that's going to fulfill all of the Old Testament. And if, if you were here last week, I talked about how, how uh, the, the coming of Jesus was kind of de- described in multiple ways. He was described as, as like the coming king, the descendant of David. He was described as like this suffering servant. He was described as like this coming warrior. And in fact, like this, this idea of the spirit coming upon him is full, like shows that Jesus is the one fulfilling all of those things from Isaiah. Look what it says in Isaiah 11, verses 1 and 2. I have it on the screen. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. Jesse is David's dad. And a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. What Isaiah prophesied is that the spirit of God would come upon like this descendant of David, this descendant of Jesse, and would remain upon him. It would be the spirit of counsel and strength and wisdom. So when John saw the Spirit descending upon Jesus, guess what? Jesus is the fulfillment of all of those promises about the coming son of David that's going to reign as king. You you move forward in the book of Isaiah to Isaiah chapter... Let me get there in my notes. 42, where we have Jesus portrayed as the servant in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah was written 700 years before Jesus came. Isaiah 42, verses 1 and 3. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimming, burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Jesus is the, the son of David. Jesus is the servant of God who has the spirit upon him and he will faithfully bring forth justice perfectly. He won't quench a smoldering wick. He's the servant that was spoken about in Isaiah 53, and Isaiah 53, uh, it it speaks about, I don't have this on the screen, but uh, you should read Isaiah 53. It's this description of what Jesus does, but one of the things it says is that Jesus, God's servant, would justify the many as he bears their iniquities. What that means is, in Isaiah's language, is justification is this idea that that all of your guilt gets taken away from you and put on somebody else. Jesus bears your iniquities. And in justification, we find out all of his righteousness gets attributed to us. And Isaiah says that the servant of God, this one on whom his spirit would come to dwell, is the one who would justify all of us. matter what guilt you might be carrying this morning Jesus is and his sacrifice is abundantly beyond anything you can imagine and he can take it away and if you think you have the righteousness that that uh, you don't need that and beware that's what the delegation from the from the Pharisees thought the last one Isaiah 59 and 60. We looked at Isaiah 59 and 60 last week, but in Isaiah 61, and, and there was this anointed warrior in Isaiah 59 and 60 we, look at, we looked at last week. In Isaiah 61, it talks about him again, but it says this about him. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Like this the spirit of God descending upon Jesus at his baptism is like a sign that Jesus is the one that is the perfect king. He's the one that's the perfect servant. He's the coming warrior upon whom who's going to come and bring good news to the afflicted and bind up the brokenhearted. Like this, this moment of John the Baptist's testimony that this is Jesus and that he's the one that the spirit is upon is, is showing us that this person that John just dunked in water is the fulfillment of everything that the Bible has been speaking about. In fact, what, you know, it's those things we looked at earlier, that he is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Back in verse 18, he's the one that explains the Father to us. If you want to understand what God is like, you you need to, John's telling us at the outset of his gospel, you need to look at the person and work and life of Jesus. There are huge, there are huge claims that are being made in these opening chap, this opening chapter. John's making a huge claim that he is the son of God. He shares God's DNA. So I, I need to wrap up, but let me just make a couple points of application. First, you know, first and foremost, if we believe this, we need to really believe that life and light, things that were talked about in the introduction, that brings healing and comfort amidst the darkness and adoption as God's children, all of that is found in Jesus Christ. We need to really believe that. You know, so one simple response for us this morning, if if we believe John the Baptist's testimony about who Jesus is, is that we would follow him. And look to him for our life and our light and our guidance and our direction. And stop looking everywhere else. In fact, look what happens. Very next thing, starting at verse 35. On the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. And behold, he looked upon Jesus as he walked. And he said, behold, the Lamb of God. There it is again. And the two disciples heard him speak. And they followed Jesus. There's your application, right? John the Baptist's disciples were like, John's like, hey, there's the Lamb of God. Peace out, John. Right, and they were following Jesus. Stop pursuing all the stupid stuff that doesn't ever—it will never satisfy you. It will never bring you life. Will never bring you light to your life. And follow Jesus. That's the simple message. And if you're here and you're like, I am too much of a dirty, like rotten scoundrel that Jesus would never follow me. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Put your faith in Him confess your sins to him and he takes it away and gives you his righteousness you know if you're here this morning and if you're just wondering and, and Marv you can come up like is he worth following and you're maybe maybe be, you're, you're here and like I mean I can't wait for the sermon to go right because this dude doesn't know what he's talking about he's just a really just nut, nut whatever right Yeah, you should go up, Bill, or no? no I don't think so. Okay, we don't want you up there anyway. Um, <laughs> if if you're if you're here and you're and you're wondering, and I just want to invite you to, I, I want to invite you to come back and and read the claims because this John's just getting warmed up, and he's just kind of setting the stage, this is God in the flesh. He's the creator, he's the redeemer, he's the lamb upon whom like the sin of humanity was put and put to death so that we can have life. That's his premise. And he's written these things so that we would believe and find life. Like my challenge to you is come back. If you don't come back, read or do both, that's even better. Cuz then you don't have to listen to me, you can just read it yourself. Because Life is found in Jesus, nowhere else. Marv, why don't you close this? I'll close this in prayer. You know, the apostle John, who wrote the Gospel of John that we were just looking at, also wrote the book of Revelation. And he wrote to the churches there, and he described, he wrote this at the beginning of of the book of Revelation. He said, "Um, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who were before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth to him who loves us and re- released us from our sins by his blood. This this Jesus that John's going to present as he gets into his gospel is is the ruler of the kings of the earth and he released us from our sins by his blood. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for Jesus Christ, for his work, that he is the lamb from you that takes away the sin of the world. And I just ask that we would live um, devoted to him in a way that reflects the greatness of what he's done for us, um, that we would follow him, that we would um, turn from our old ways of life and, and, and just live full on and full out for him who loves us and releases us from our sins. And Father, if there's anyone here who hasn't placed their faith in you, I pray that you would reveal yourself to them, reveal to them the need for for Jesus Christ and, and um, lead them to place their faith in him. Just thank you for your care for us um, every day. In Jesus' name, amen.